0: Awesome. Thank you, Hayes, Bethany, team. Thank you, John. Well, good morning, church. How are you? It is good to see all of you here today, and I'm glad that you've braved the weather to come out and worship with us. We've celebrated in song. We've celebrated through Scripture, through baptism. We get to celebrate through the Word uh, here today. Grab your Bibles, if you will. Let's go to Jeremiah chapter 25. Jeremiah 25 is where we will be today. Old Testament. Start a look in there. Jeremiah 25 verse 1 is where we will begin in just a minute. We're going to read a lot today. Jeremiah 25 verse 1 is where we'll begin in just a moment as we start a brand new sermon series today. Jeremiah chapter 25 starting in verse 1. While you guys are turning uh, there, I don't know about you, but I hate Moving. I do not like it. Is anybody else with me on that? You just hate moving. Anybody? Yes. Does anyone enjoy moving? Anybody? Anybody? Just enjoy? It. Anybody else? I, I I don't understand you. I don't. I don't. I don't get it. Like, I, I I need you to explain that to me because I don't. I mean, literally, it is such a disruptive thing to move. I moved about three years ago into a new house, and I will be just happy if I never moved again. I don't need anything else. This is fine. Don't want to go anywhere because it is horrible to move. I mean, we have to move. You got to pack up everything. So all your routines, the places where you know everything is, you got to take everything, pack it all up in boxes. It's a ton of work. You got to carry it out. You got to put it in a truck and then you take it to a brand new place. And even if that place is great, even if you love it, you still have to unpack everything and you don't know where everything goes and you gotta create a new routine and what am I gonna put there and, and what's gonna go over in this spot? I mean, it takes forever to kind of put everything where you want it to be. You might have to get new things to fill new spots because you're in a new space. And I know for me, that whole first year of being in a new house, I still felt like I was in somebody else's house. Like, it, it just wasn't mine yet. I had bought somebody else's house and was in their space, and it, it just takes time to rebuild all of those routines. It's even worse if you move towns. Some of you may have done that during the pandemic. You moved into the area, and that's even worse because now you got to figure everything out. Where's the Walmart? Where are the restaurants? Where's the Home Depot? Where's my church going to be? What friends do I have? What, what's the routine? Who are my neighbors? You've got to rebuild everything from scratch. It is a lot of work to move. But there's a point to it. If you put the hard work into a move, you picked a a good new place, you picked a a great spot to be in or a great house, you moved for a reason. If you do the hard work of settling in and building new relationships, over time you turn around and realize that this might even be better than the place I left. Instead of constantly looking back to that place I used to live and the things I used to have and the things I used to do, you get to enjoy the new things in this new place. It takes work, but if you put that work in, it brings an incredible amount of joy. Look, we're going to be starting a new sermon series today called Return, Rebuild, and Renew. If you've been here through any length of time, you know that in the summer, we like to head back into the Old Testament. And over the past decade, we have been systematically walking through the history of the Old Testament. Uh, This year, we want to look back at a very particular time in the nation of Israel's history because I think it has some very specific things to say to us where we are today. We're going to be looking at the return of the exiles, the period in Israelite history where they returned from exile back into Jerusalem. Now, if you are not totally up on your Israelite history, let me give you a very quick kind of primer on how we got here. God started the nation of of Israel out of scratch. He starts with a man named Abraham, calls him from his nation and says, Abraham, I'm going to make a promise to you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars. And through you, Abraham, I want to bless the entire world. And true to his word, God gave Abraham sons. Those sons had more sons. They became the nation of Israel. That nation was enslaved by Egypt 400 years. God raises up Moses to deliver that nation. They go through the Red Sea, through the wilderness wanderings until God takes them to the promised land, the land that we know as Israel. God puts his people there, gives it to them, gives them a great king in David, They experienced kind of a golden age under his rule, but after David started a long, slow, and steady decline. Bad king after bad king led to more and more chaos. There was civil war. The nation would split. Now it's not a unified nation. Now there's Israel in the north and Judah in the south. More bad kings, they would fight with one another, fight with other people, until finally, first Israel was conquered, and then Judah And the people of Judah, that's where Jerusalem is, the people were taken into exile to Babylon. And while that may have seemed like the end of the story, God was not done yet, and he brings his people back. He returns his people from Babylon to a destroyed Jerusalem, and that's the period that we're going to look at. It would have been a very hard journey. We're going to walk with them as they go from Babylon back to Israel, back to their homeland as they try to return and rebuild and renew what God had been doing. There would have been nothing there for them. It would have been hard work. They would have to recreate everything from scratch, but God was with them and God helped them and at the end of this, God did bring forth the answer to the promises he made to them, to the nation. And all the way back to Abraham to bless the entire world. Now, we've looked at this before in the past, but I think it's important for us to go look at it again because of where we find ourselves today as a church. We are in a very unique situation as a congregation in that we have all just been through a crisis. For the past 15 months, everything that we had has been discombobulated. For three months, we went on an exile of our own. We were exiled from this place. We couldn't even come in here to worship. We're still a little bit separated. We still have folks who are worshiping at home. We still are kind of marching towards getting back to normal. But even by looking at the crowd here, you recognize that we have started that process. We are moving back towards that place. We're not fully there yet, but as we move into the fall and into the rest of the year, we have a task in front of us, and it's to rebuild who we are. But a few things we need to know about that task right off the bat. As we walk into this fall, we need to recognize that we are going to be different than we used to be. That cannot be helped. We are going to be a different group of people as we march into the fall and into the future than the people we were back in March of 2020. People have left the congregation. A lot more people have joined. And that might be you. You might be here today. I'm seeing a lot of faces I don't recognize as well. You may say, Adam, I started coming a few months ago. We started online. I wasn't here in March of 2020, but God has called us to this place. You actually may have been coming here for the past six to nine months, but you're getting to know all the faces who are here. But what that tells us is we're about to be different. We're going to be new as we march into the fall. And furthermore, we've been wounded, all of us. It doesn't matter who you are, you have been impacted by the pandemic. We have all been traumatized in some way. And as we march into the fall, what you're going to find is is that everybody is struggling or dealing with their own particular kind of wound. It may not be the wound that you have. Don't assume that the way that you experienced the pandemic is the way everybody else experienced the pandemic. As we walk back in, we'll all have our own little grab bag of woundings. As we come back, some of us are angry. Some of us are frustrated. Some of us are fatigued. Some of us are grieving. Some of us are confused. Some of us are excited. Some of us are wondering what the Lord's going to do. But we've all had our share of pain throughout this pandemic. And part of this rebuild is for the Lord to heal us as individuals, but also to heal us as a congregation. But if you and I will do the hard work of rebuilding as we return, as we seek the Lord to renew us, if we will do the hard work of walking wherever God asks us to walk, we will see something supernatural in our midst. You see, God brings his people back to Israel for a purpose. When he brings them back to Israel, they will rebuild Jerusalem. They will rebuild the capital city and hundreds of years later in a rebuilt Jerusalem from the line of Judah will come Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ in that city will give his very life and thus fulfill the promise made all the way back to Abraham to bless the entire world through this nation. That's how we experience salvation today. God has plans and purposes for his people and he has plans and purposes for this congregation. And we have an opportunity to join with him over the course of this next season. It's gonna be unique. It's gonna be exciting. It's gonna require some work, but I'm glad we get to do it together. But to help us as we kind of jump into this one history of talking about these exiles returning, we need to answer the question, well, how did they get there? How did they get exiled in the first place? So let me give you a quick snapshot of just kind of the history of how we got here. There's a few names you're going to need to know about. I told you earlier that the nation had been split in two. You had the older sister, Israel, in the north. It was larger. And then in the south, you had Judah, smaller, but you have Jerusalem there. During that time, the Assyrians were the bad boys on the block. They were the national superpower. They were gobbling up everyone, and they ultimately will come in and destroy Israel. They will take the people out of Israel and reseed the land with new people. Whoever was left intermarried with all the new people who came in, everything kind of got cross-pollinated, and this is where you'll get the Samaritans. You may recognize them from the New Testament, but in effect, Israel in the, in the north is destroyed. But in the south, Judah hangs on. They hang on for a little time until Assyria wanes and now there's a new bad boy on the block. It's Babylon. And their king, Nebuchadnezzar, conquers Assyria and now they are the ones conquering everybody else and it will be Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar who come and ultimately will destroy Jerusalem and take God's people into exile into Babylon. Babylon. Now, that's just on the surface. That's just the stuff you can see. That's the politics. That's the stuff that's just history. You can kind of watch how everything's moving. But there is a deeper thing happening underneath and honestly more important. There's something going on in Judah, and it's this. God's people refuse to follow after him. Instead of following after the Lord with their whole heart, they have given themselves over to idolatry. They've given themselves over to sin, and God continues to try to call his people back. This is the deeper problem in Israel. He says, listen, you guys need to follow the Lord. If you do not follow the Lord, destruction will follow. And so God sends prophet after prophet to his people. He calls to them time and time again, but during this season, there'll be one prophet that rises above all the others. His name is Jeremiah. Jeremiah. That's the book that we're reading even today. And Jeremiah, for his entire life, prophesies to the people of Israel to no avail. And so look where we find ourselves, Jeremiah chapter 25, starting at verse 1. Listen to what Jeremiah is going to say to the people. It says, The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. For 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day, the word of the Lord has come to me. And I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets, saying, "'Turn now, every one of you, "'from his evil way and evil deeds.'" dwell upon the land that the Lord your God has given you and your fathers from of old and forever. Don't go after other gods to serve and worship them or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Then I will do you harm. Do you no harm? Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord. You might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will sin for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants, and all the surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction, making them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land will become a ruin and a waste and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. Now let's be honest, that probably sounds harsh to modern ears, does it not? That God's going to bring destruction upon his people, not a spanking, He says, I'm going to level everything. This whole land is going to be a desolation and a waste. There's going to be a judgment that comes down upon God's people. But if that sounds harsh to us, I think there's a couple things that we need to keep in mind. The first off is this, we need to remember the holiness of God. See, this is hard for us because we are sinful. We make excuses for sin. We find reasons to keep it around, reasons why it's okay for us, But that doesn't happen with God. He is perfectly holy and he hates sin. Why? Because sin is death. It kills, it destroys, it wounds, it maims, it mars, it diseases. Always, sin always destroys what God has created. The very people that he loves more than anything, sin destroys them. And so God will not abide it. He cannot because he is perfect and he is holy. He must bring judgment against sin. But right alongside that, you need to recognize his patience. Look back at verse three and notice what he says. It's interesting. He says, for 23 years, I've been preaching to you. Think about that from Jeremiah's perspective. He has been preaching the same message for 23 years and nobody listens. Two decades and more, Jeremiah has been saying the exact same thing. Turn from your ways. Why would you do this? Don't let this calamity come upon you. He doesn't do this for 23 days. He doesn't do it for even 23 months. For 23 years, two decades and more, God reaches out to his people. He calls to his people. He gives them every opportunity to repent, and they refuse. They just won't. They persist in their sin. And because they refuse, God will ultimately bring this judgment upon them. But even then, he does not bring it in one fell swoop. When we talk about the exile of the Israelites, this doesn't happen once. It actually happens three separate times. There'll be three occasions which exiles leave to Babylon. And the first of these will happen in 597 B.C. God will bring Nebuchadnezzar to Israel, to Judah rather, into Jerusalem, and he will exile a portion of the people. He takes the king, the queen, all the leaders, he takes the, the craftsmen, he takes the metalworkers, he takes the artisans. He basically takes the, the intellectual flower of Judah back into Babylon. If you've read the stories of Daniel and his friends, this is when they would have been exiled into Babylon. And so you would think after that, people would say, wait a minute, God God meant what he said. Because you see, Jerusalem still stands. They don't level anything. They exile some people, but... But the people are still there. The city still stands. They're a vassal nation now to the kingdom of Babylon. But that had happened before. But everything is still there. God didn't bring the fullness of the destruction. Maybe now the people will wake up and say, God means it. He's actually going to follow through with that. We need to turn from our wicked ways. And they don't. They just keep doing it. They say, well, no, that wasn't so bad. Listen, he didn't really follow through. That's all it was. It'll be fine. Even for the people who've been exiled into Babylon, you have people who've been yanked away from their homes. They've got prophets of their own in Babylon saying, this is a short-term thing. It's temporary, two years tops, and then we're going home. We're out of here. Don't worry about it, but God won't actually bring that destruction Jeremiah's been talking about For 20 years and more. And so Jeremiah gets yet another word from the Lord to speak to those very exiles. He's gonna say some things that you might recognize, but he has a very distinct word for them. It happens in Jeremiah chapter 29. This is starting in verse one, Jeremiah 29. Listen to this. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles. And to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Don't worry about all that. It said... Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles who I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses, live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there, don't decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, don't let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and don't listen to the dreams that they dream for it's a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, I will be found by you declares the Lord and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you declares the Lord and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. I want you to imagine if you can being one of those exiles in Babylon. You most likely hate this nation that has ripped you away from your home And marched you by a trail of tears into a foreign land. Occupied, conquered. You want to listen to those prophets. You want to go home. And Jeremiah just sent you a letter saying, that's not going to happen. Four things I think are are key here in this passage. The first is this. God says, I sent you into exile. Did you catch that? He says it three times. He starts with it, says it in the middle, says it again at the end. He said, I did this. I am the one who brought you into exile. This is not circumstantial. You were not simply a victim of geopolitics. This is not just something that happened haphazardly. I am the one who did this. Now, Nebuchadnezzar probably would have a word with that. He goes, oh no, I am king of Babylon. I did this. To which God would say, oh no, little man, I do what I will. You won't be here around that long anyway. Read Daniel. It's interesting. So look, I move nations around. I move history around. Things happen the way I want them to. You are my servant. But Israel, don't miss this. I did this to you on purpose. I took you into exile just like I said I would because you refused to listen to me. I did this. Second thing he says this, this is gonna last 70 years. Did you catch that? That had to be a gut punch to everybody who just read that letter. As soon as Jeremiah says that, everybody doubles over. Because here's what that means. For almost everybody listening to this letter being read out loud, that means that they will never see Israel again. Only the youngest of them will survive long enough to actually go back and see the land. The rest of them will die in Babylon. Now for us, we, we, that's full stop. Because if it doesn't help us, then, then why do we care? But that's because we're individualistic Westerners. That's not how the Israelites would have thought. They don't simply care about themselves or even their individual family. They care about their clan. They care about their nation. And what God is saying this in verse 11, a verse that many of you know, he said, I still have plans for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. What could that possibly mean? God says, wait a minute, I took you into exile. He says, I'm not done with you. I am not by no means done with you. I still am working. I still have a plan. I will take you back. All the promises I made to the nation, back to David, back to Abraham. I'm gonna fulfill all of those. I still have plans for you. But can you think about the grace that's inherent in that statement? Remember who he's talking to. These are people who have been stopping their ears against the Lord for 20 years and more. For over 20 years, they have been refusing to listen to the Lord. Refusing to listen to what he has done. And to those very people, God says, This, I still have plans for you. I haven't given up on you. Even though it might take many more decades, I will not give up on you. He still loves his people. But I think the most important verse comes not in verse 11, but in verse 13. Verse 11 gets all the attention. We put that on placards. We memorize it. It's probably one that's most familiar to you, even from Jeremiah, if not the Old Testament. But twenty nine thirteen is actually my favorite verse, where he says this, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. You see, that's the key. That's what they never did. This is what they've never come close to. The Israelites were not pagans. They loved the Lord. They just also loved idols. They also loved their sin. They also loved themselves. They liked the Lord. They just wanted the Lord and whatever else they wanted. They gave God part of their heart, but they never gave God all of their heart. But that's what God is after. He's not after part of us. He's after all of us. This becomes clearer when you really look deeper into those 23 years that Jeremiah has been prophesying. Hearing the history so far, you might just assume that for that entire time, they've just been running after idols full tilt, but that's not technically true. When Jeremiah started off his preaching career, the guy on the throne was a guy named Manasseh, horrible dude, hated the Lord, runs after idols, evil, evil guy. His son Ammon wasn't much better, but his grandson was different. Josiah was probably one of the best kings that Israel ever had. He comes to the throne as an eight-year-old. By the time he really comes to the throne when he's about 18 to 20 years old, he loves the Lord and is bound and determined to bring the nation back to their God. During his reign, they discover the book of the law. And Josiah is horrified, horrified that they lost it in the first place, even more horrified when he reads it and sees just how far they've strayed from the ways of the Lord. And so he declares a nationwide reform. He's going to break down all the idols. He's going to break down all of their altars. He's going to mandate the festivals to be had again, just like God prescribed. He's going to draw the people and their hearts back to the Lord. Jeremiah is there for all of this. And from the outside, you might say, wait a minute, isn't that exactly what God wants? I mean, mean, that's exactly what we're we're after. So don't we just need to go back to that and That won't work because after all these years of the the people going along with it and everybody being on Josiah's page, Josiah finally dies. You know what happens after he dies? They go right back to those idols. They rebuild all of those pagan shrines and they worship all the idols all over again. And what Jeremiah had to come to grips with was that this nationwide reform was only skin deep. See, it never got down to their hearts. They never actually changed from the inside out. You see, anybody can go along with the flow. Anybody can pretend to be religious. We do it all the time, do we not? We sometimes pretend to be more righteous than we are. I see this anytime I go out and I meet new people, especially on planes, when they ask me the question, so what do you do for a living? I say, I'm a pastor and the conversation changes. (laughs) Because that's when they stop cussing right? Cussing up a storm like five minutes ago. Now I go, oh, he's a pastor. Hi, pastor. As if I forgot like what you just said. Like, dude, I'm still here, right? You know, I, go, I don't know. Who's this? Look, anybody can put up a front. Some of you do that too. Let's be honest, okay? You're not going to cuss over here. You're going to wait till later. All right, so We can put up a front, we can dress up nice. Anybody can go along with the flow. Anybody can kind of do what everybody else is doing. But if it doesn't get down to our hearts, we'll never change. You see, this is why you can't legislate your way into culture change. There's not enough laws we can pass in this country that will make America follow after the Lord. You know that, right? Do you realize that every culture has tried that and they've all failed? Because unless it gets down to our hearts, Unless our hearts are changed, it doesn't last. But God's not after the surface. He doesn't want a few years of people pretending to follow him. He says, no, I made you for myself. I made you to know me. I made you to live in me, abide in me, like we sang earlier. And that can only happen when your hearts are changed. And so God will take his people on a painful journey to help change their very hearts. It'll work too. When all this is done, they won't deal with idolatry again but we're not there yet. The people hear this letter, they listen to it and promptly disregard it. And they keep doing what they've always been doing. And so God will then bring the full destruction. It happens in 586 BC. And when Nebuchadnezzar returns this time, he levels everything. It's recounted twice in the book of Jeremiah. Look at this, it's in Jeremiah chapter 52. Verses 12 and 14 says, In the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, that was the nineteenth year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the bodyguard who served the king of Babylon, entered Jerusalem. And he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down and all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down all the walls around Jerusalem. The destruction is immense. It's devastating. Three quarters of the population will die. That's irreplaceable. The temple, Solomon's temple, the beautiful temple that had been created is raised. Walls of Jerusalem, those shining white walls are broken down. There's three different things that get destroyed here. You see the temple gone, the center of their religious life, the place where God's presence resided, gone. The walls, their security, gone. And then their society. Well, that many people dead, more exiled, more will be exiled here, more will happen just after this. There's three exiles, the people are gone. All the society has been broken. And please understand, this is 18 years after that first passage I shared with you. God said, I preached to you 23 years. He gives them another 18. Another almost two decades. 41 years he will preach. 41 years he reaches out. 41 years. And they never listened. And so God destroys everything. And the only people left are the ones in exile, wondering, is everything over? Is God done with us? Have we finally sinned too much? And has he abandoned us? But Jeremiah always said there was more going on. And back in, verse, in chapter 31, he said something very specific. This is Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Listen to what he says. And I will be their God and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Is this starting to sound familiar? God says, I'm gonna come and I'm gonna forgive my people. I'm gonna bring a true forgiveness to my people. More than that though, I'm gonna change them from the inside out. This is not gonna be a superficial change or a temporary change, but no, I'm gonna change their hearts so my law will literally be written inside of them. And, but right at the beginning, there was this new phrase. Did you catch it? He says, I will make a new covenant with my people. And you see, this covenant is not going to be like the last one that you guys broke, where I kept my end of the bargain, but but you guys did not. A, A covenant that's based on your actions, but instead, this covenant will be different. And so, God brings his people back. They come back to Jerusalem and they will rebuild. They will rebuild the city, they will rebuild the temple, they will rebuild the entire society. And almost 600 years later, from the line of Judah in Jerusalem, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, will walk. And in that very city, on the night before his execution, he will say something very specific to his disciples. This is Luke chapter 22, 19 and 20. We've said this many times in here. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Here's Jesus hearkening all the way back to Jeremiah saying what I am doing is what I promised to do all those years ago. You see, I never gave up on my people. I never gave up on my promises. There was just no way y'all could do it. Nobody was righteous enough. Nobody could actually fulfill the law. Nobody could be perfect until Jesus. And now here comes Jesus who has fulfilled all of the law, who will give his life on the cross. And by his sacrifice, by the shedding of his blood, he will inaugurate a new covenant, a covenant not based on works, but based on grace, not based on what we do, but on what he has already done so that our confidence is not in politics or or power or our own ability, but our confidence can be and our Savior who loved us, who never gave up on us, and who now will put his very life inside of us by the Holy Spirit, that through him we can have a confidence of eternal life in the shed blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior. He fulfills his promises. It's a new covenant, and he invites us now to do what we were made for, which is to live in him. Why would we run after idols and our own sin and our own selfishness and our own ways when eternal life is offered to us? But we will find that life when we do what the Israelites did not do and could not do. And so two things as we just begin this series, as we begin to walk with these Israelites from Babylon back into Jerusalem, I wonder if today we simply need to repent. I wonder if we need to repent. Our God is gracious. He is good. But sin is still death. And I wonder if for some of us, the Lord has been speaking for a long time and saying, listen, if, if there's going to be anything that you can return and rebuild and renew, it's gonna require another re. We need to repent, to turn away from our evil and give our whole hearts to the Lord. See, look, anybody can check in over the course of the next season. A lot of people will. Check in, check out, drift in, drift out. That's happened, that's fine. That's fine. But if you want to be a part of the move of God, if you want to be a part of what God is rebuilding, if you want to be a part of God's fulfillment of what he's doing, it starts when we repent and say, God, I refuse to give you part of my life. I give you all of my life. For some in that room, here's what that means. That means salvation. Because for some of us, we've been dancing around the Lord and you may have been doing it for decades, You can put on the front, we we can pretend for a time, but we always drift away. But you've never come to a place where you surrendered all of yourself to the Lord, where you recognize that I just can't fix me. I keep trying and I I meant well, but, but I couldn't do it. And Jesus, if you don't help me, I don't have any life. And so God, I don't deserve it. But can you forgive me of my sins and make me born again, brand new? And for some of you, that's exactly where you are. Maybe it's been 41 years for you, or 20, or 30, or 10, or 5, or 50. And the same God who made you never gave up on you and is asking you before we can do anything as we return, are are you willing to give all of yourself to the Lord? Not part of your life, all of yourself to the Lord. And even right now, you can put your faith in him. Right now, you can turn to him and say, God, I surrender. I'm not waiting. I'm not waiting until the end of the service. God, I, I need you. God, I surrender to you. I believe and I can't do it. God, help me and let the Lord Jesus Christ transform you. We watched that joy today in baptism. It's two men who've been in church for a while said finally, hey, I'm going to give my life to the Lord. I now have salvation in him. I have confidence in him. Maybe that needs to be you today. Put your faith in the Lord. Be saved and join into what God made you for. But for my brothers and sisters, you may say, Adam, I am saved. I believe you, but you still need to repent. Is there something that you've just been let, hanging on for way too long? A sin, an attitude, an action, a habit, something we just keep making excuses for that God talks to you time and time again. Could it finally be time that we say, I, I can't do this. I need God to do a work in me and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. I need to turn from this. I wonder if today, believer, you just need to repent from what you're dealing with. You're not alone. We are all constantly having to repent, but there will be no joy. There'll be no rebuilding. There'll be no lasting change until we turn. And we say, God, I, I, I cannot walk in sin and walk in you at the same time. So, Father, I choose this day to repent. You don't have to tell me. You don't have to tell anybody, but you've got to tell the Lord and say, Lord, I'm sorry. Would you cleanse me? I choose to follow you. But after we repent, here's the second thing. We can live in the new covenant. You see, this story is not just a history lesson. We're not just learning about what God did in the past. Don't you understand that as Jesus Christ comes, he's fulfilling the promise to Abraham, I'm gonna bless the entire world. The gospel by which you and I are saved is the same gospel that needs to be preached to everybody. He's wanting all peoples, nations, tribes, and tongues to come to faith in him. He is building us as part of his kingdom, even this particular congregation. He says, I have a specific plan for you. Not just what I've done in the past, great that that may be, but what he's about to do in us, and he's calling us to be a part of it. Not simply to watch or to see it, but to participate. To be God's people, his beacon, his city on a hill that others might come to faith in him and find the eternal life that you and I have found. It is the grand adventure he is calling us all into, and that's what stands before us. We can't do it in our own power. We could try real hard and accomplish a couple things and pat ourselves on the back for a couple nice projects, but. That's not really what we're after. Are are we willing to walk in the Lord and to let him take us where he wants to go? Not where I want to go or you want to go or they want to go, but where the Lord is calling us. Are we willing to walk into something new to return and rebuild and renew Recognizing just what we learned this last series that the Holy Spirit lives in us. He will lead us and guide us. We can use the gifts of the Spirit together to see what He will do in this place, in this time. He is still fulfilling that promise, and He's inviting us to join Him. So do this one. You. Bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment. Look, I know it's hard to jump into ancient history. It's hard to truly put ourselves in the shoes of people whose culture and times we we just barely understand. But you understand your own time. We understand now. And we know that God is still here. And that what he began all those years ago, he is continuing to do now, that he still has plans for God's people, plans to prosper us and not to harm us, plans to give us a hope and a future. That's for us as a people. What would it look like for us to follow him in that? If you're here today and say, Adam, I I just started coming here. I don't even know this place. Or maybe you say, Adam, I, I don't even know if I know the Lord. Praise be to God that he is a God who loves and saves, who is gracious and merciful, who made you and loves you and won't give up on you, who keeps chasing you, who died for you. Who rose again and prays for you even now and is inviting you into his life not just with himself but with his people maybe even right now you need to give your life to the lord maybe now is a moment of repentance where you can say even as a believer god you've saved me but but i've gotten off track i've i've allowed the woundings of this this past season to derail me and Lord, I don't just want to get back to where I was. I want to go forward to where you're going. And so, Jesus, I surrender to you. I bring to you my whole heart. Not part of me, but all of me. Jesus, would you help me, surround me, fill me, change me, send me. And do that with us, that we might follow after you. Heavenly Father, would you bless our people? Would you bless us? Would you speak to us? Lord, I don't exactly know all that you are about to do, but I don't want to just stay where we are or go back to where we've been. Lord, we wanna follow after you. So whatever you need to do to help us join you in this grand vision that you have, would you you help us? we choose today to simply surrender and say, help us. We can't do this on our own, but with your help, Father, we will follow after you. And so, Father, bring salvation, bring cleansing. And Lord, as a people, we will choose to follow after you. We love you, Lord. We give you our whole hearts today. In your name we pray.